welcome to the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Monte. Where do your opinions come from? Why do we think what we think and why do we disagree? In each episode, we'll talk with thought leaders from around the world to help us understand the nature of opinion, how ideas form, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. Today, we're talking to Peter Pomerantsev. Peter is a journalist and a writer and a senior fellow at the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me uh, on this on this on this uh, exciting uh, Internet link up in our quarantine days. Indeed, it is London to Herefordshire. Um, Peter, you've spent the last few years looking at how information and information flows are controlled in today's globalized world. Your first book focused particularly on Russia, where you described Putin and his system as a kind of postmodern dictatorship. Your second book, this is not propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality, um, uh, extended that inquiry globally. You went from Mexico all the way through the Philippines. my first question for you is really, we've been manufacturing opinion for a very, very long time now. How is it that you're seeing what happens now as different, say, from state control of media in the 21st, in the 20th century or all the other forms of propaganda that we've seen historically? So um, maybe that, that we could think about it in terms of waves. Maybe every time there's a new technology, all the old rules get upended you know there's parallels you can make about the entry of digital and social media to onto the information marketplace as you know as as tempestuous as the arrival of print and the arrival of radio and every time a major new technology arrives you know all all the old rules seem to get thrown out the window but if we just bring it to to you know the frame of the book which really is a book that focuses because it starts in in the 1970s and the sort of you know the late Cold War uh, and the 1990s and contrast that with today. And I think there's something systemic has happened because over the 20th century, the kind of formulae and ideals and uh, kind of uh, methods we had for guaranteeing a democratic information space, um, they've been Appended. So, so, so they, they were kind of, you know, they were kind of contained in a few simple, simple ideas. So, the idea of pluralism and the guarantee of freedom of expression, uh, and um, you know, the metaphor of a marketplace of ideas, and and kind of a, you know, uh, you know, the idea that you could speak truth to power, and the powerful were frightened of truth, and um, uh, and. And kind of an idea of the free individual who can read and express themselves and, and even listen to certain types of music and behave in certain ways. The idea of a liberal self, uh, a critical sort of mind and a, and a, and a, and, and a freedom-loving mind. So, so this kind of bunch of ideals and ideals and, 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 and characters, I suppose, as well, um, were what was meant to kind of balance out um, the attempts to control the narratives and manufacture opinion and, and all these things you talk about. 
so yes, there was propaganda, but it was kind of balanced out with these things. And that, that was the difference between the democratic information space and an authoritarian or totalitarian one. And in the book, I dramatize that through the story of my parents my, in my last book, uh, who were Soviet dissidents and fought for all these things. They were arrested for fighting for the right to read what they wanted to and write what they wanted to. They, they, they yearned for pluralism. They saw themselves as liberal selves. Um, and, and, you know, they risked their lives in order to tell truth to power. So, so what I show in, in my book, how, how all that's been turned upside down. So you now have um, all sorts of leaders, but leaders who want to take away other people's rights using freedom of expression uh, in order to, to crush opposition and take away other people's rights. So I look at leaders... I look at the Philippines and Russia, but I could have looked anywhere, really. Uh, the use of kind of cyber militias and trolls to drown out and break trust in, in critical voices. Um, but the point here is that instead of trying to constrict the information space, which is what you did in the 20th century, the idea is the opposite. The idea is to open the floodgates to so much disinformation that the truth is, 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 is drowned out. And... It's very hard to stand up to this because, you know, I talk to sort of critical journalists who try to, you know, scream to the world, look, you know, we're being oppressed by these cyber militias and trolls and, and all the rest. And, and the answer from the regime is always, no, this is freedom of expression. This is what you guys fought for, you know. And, um, and so and, and you can, one can laugh because that's obviously cynical, but what they say, but it's also legally true. There is nothing in the Declaration of Human Rights in Article 19. Uh, that is the guarantor of freedom of expression, which is the kind of the UN, the human rights, you know, principle that my parents sort of clung on to while they were being interrogated by the KGB. Uh, there's nothing, nothing in there that says anything about disinformation. It's just the right to receive and impart information. So there's no kind of even kind of philosophical, let alone legal way that we have at the moment to deal with this sort of deluges of, of, of disinformation and online mobs and the rest. And that also then asks us, you know, has led a lot of people to ask the question about whether, you know, the marketplace of ideas metaphor wins out because you know the, the marketplace of ideas concept was that it's okay to have lies, whatever the truth will win out, the best information will float to the top. But that's completely unclear when you can create um, disinformation so easily online just at a click of a button at rates that are unheard of before. Um, I could go on. But no, 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 that, that's fascinating. As, as a starting point, as a starting yeah. point, that's that's fascinating. And the the thing which, I mean, as I as I read your book, I spent a long time in the Middle East, and um, I, I kept on translating it into a different uh, framework, which is the Middle East, as you know, is not terribly famous for its love of free speech. Um, it, in fact, sort of the opposite across the entire board, with the exception of Lebanon. And um, Lebanon suffers from precisely what you're describing, this absurd surfeit of free speech or whatever it is, where there is um, vast amounts of competing information and sort of no referee <laughs> of any kind. Um, I kept on thinking, you know, we are all Lebanon today. Every group has mm -hmm. got its own media. Every group has got its own TV channel. Every group has got its own newspaper. And, and there's, there's no sense of, of, um, of anything other than this mass of conversation, none of which is, um, ever gets to a point. You, you flagged technology here right at the beginning of your, of your, of your first comment here, that 
every every new technology brings with it a um, a raft of new issues um, when it comes to the information ecosystem. Can you point to the, you've talked about bots? You've talked about these armies of of, uh, of of bots. Can you talk to some examples that you've seen Philippines, Russia, elsewhere, um, where we get a sense of the tools available to those people interested in destabilizing the discourse? So, so part of the mission of my book was in the chaos of today's, you know, you know, information clusterfuck, uh, was to go, I wanted to go around the world and see whether we saw systemic things. And I do, you know, the, the way I built the book, um, the way I kind of stitched it together and what I really wanted to do was to move between countries that maybe people don't put together usually and we might think of them as the other and show actually how we're seeing systemic things. So, so when I'm doing bots and trolls, um, I look at the Philippines and talk about Duterte, who's you know, kind of a, the new president there, or new since sort of the latest one, uh, and his use of, of digital. He was, he was an outsider candidate to a certain extent. And so, you know, he, he kind of pushed himself through, through digital means. Um, but but really show how that's being used in Russia. Then I then I kind of reference some research which shows how this is being used both in democracies and non-democracies. I mean, the Chinese have their fifty cent army, thus called because they get paid fifty cents like for every comment they post online. Um, but there really isn't a regime in the world which isn't using some form of this, whether it's kind of like troll farms the way the Russians do, or just having you know enthusiastic activists like the Donald Trump campaign who kind of you know the the trump administration feeds them uh, you know often these alt-right online groups like you know a journalist they should target and they go after them like a pack of wolves and dox them and threaten them so so the relationships can be different you know they can be kind of linear or they can be much more loose but but there is not you know that the, there really isn't a country with high digitization that isn't using this because at the end of the day look a lot of pr companies do this like actual pr companies um, during our research uh, at the Parliamentary Committee on Disinformation that I worked on, we got to see some of the kind of promotional documents that SCL, that's the sort of the Cambridge Analytica company had, and they openly boasted about we will create fake avatars and fake bots in order to promote your campaign. You know, that it wasn't, they weren't hiding it. It was, this was part of the package. And we've seen British PR companies uh, do this across the world. And this is now part of the package that a lot of PR companies do. Um, so so there really isn't anyone who's untouched. And the only places that are untouched are places with very low uh, internet penetration. But, you know, there's very few of those left. Um, Germany, very interesting, the German, last German federal elections, all the parties, apart from the AFD, which is the right-wing party, uh, and it's worth double-checking this, but this is what I heard on, on, on the scene. Um, because we researched the election, all the parties kind of admitted said they, they would not use fake accounts. They wouldn't use bots and stuff like that. So they, they, they said, like, we're going to have a, you know, that's kind of a social taboo. We don't want to, we want to have an election that's transparent. But everywhere else, I mean, it's just, it's just standard now. Um, and it will be standard until the regulation changes because, you know, it's a fierce war for competitive advantage. So this is really, and you know, what, what, one of the points I make in the book is, is in that in that way, if in the Cold War, it was really easy to say, look, here's the democratic information space, which has pluralism, freedom of expression, all the things I talked about. And here's a totalitarian one where they don't have that. And you can easily tell the difference 
between the dictators' media systems and the democratic media systems. Now it can be very hard to tell the difference. The systems of governance are different, obviously. Yeah, I mean, you don't go to jail in America or 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 um, uh, or, or, or even the UK. Yeah, yeah. yeah so okay. the governance is different. Yeah. Uh, but the actual use of bots, trolls, all that kind of stuff, that's the same everywhere now. So there's actually very hard to tell the difference in some ways between the media's, you know, the, the media effects in the digital space. Um, so and that's not good. <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. And this is, it's, this is fascinating because for lots of people in the liberal middle um, have found themselves extraordinarily surprised to find the hard right pick up all the tools which they felt belonged to the left, the tools of the 1970s, you know, outrage, um, political activism, free speech as the move. Um, yes. They've all been... So that, Even more than that, did you read the, um, did you read the manifesto of, of one of these kind of right-wing shooters in America the last time? I think he went into, into Walmart and shot a lot of Hispanic people. So he wrote a manifesto, and in it he says, I am against intermarriage because I support diversity. Intermarriage is making us all the same, and I want the <laughs> diversity of races. You know, so he's, he's completely co-opted liberal language in order to uh, advance the cause of, um, well, not just racism, but actually kind of like, you know, uh, apartheid. <laughs> yeah, that again, all sorts of surprises that we're seeing. Um, I think that there is an element, um, one beyond where you're going, which is not that the narratives some are being controlled in quite the same way, but actually that the very idea of truth is being destabilized. There's a sort of a collective global gaslighting going on. And you, you, Harry Frankfurt's fabulous essay on bullshit talks to this. Um, I feel like this relates to your, your idea of sort of postmodern propaganda, postmodern communication. Um, can, you, can you talk to, because this is a, a sort of a central element to your book. This is that somehow if relativism is driven into everybody's assumption about the media landscape, it sort of achieves all the work without actually having to advance a particular narrative at all. Is that right? Yeah. And here it's very interesting. Look, there's the, if I ever, I do a grown up work, like a proper grown up book, um, an academic work uh, on media sociology, I want to do it about the relationship between the medium and the message. So to what extent is the things that you just mentioned, this kind of, um, this change from trying to convince people of something, of the ideals of communism or the ideals of Nazism or the ideals of democratic capitalism, this ideological competition that you had in the, in, in the 20th century to this kind of, these leaders who don't care about even trying to convince something, they just set out to confuse and see doubts, bullshit. But I think it's even deeper than Harry Frankfurter's essay. It's, it's, it's really just upend the very idea that truth is out there. Um, you know, how did that come about? Is that is that something that emerged out of culture and history, or is that something that's? And what is the relationship of that to the medium? Um, sort of the the fragmentation of media, where there's no need. I mean, there's no way to even dominate all the TV channels. So why would you even try? Um, so I mean, to, to a certain extent, you know, when you see authoritarian rulers like like Putin, 
adopting these strategies, it's it's from a sense of helplessness. You know, so they can't censor anymore. They can't control all the media anymore. Even though they put people in prison, they can't do that. So the only effective thing to do when there's so much information is to spread doubt, conspiracy theories, uncertainty. That's actually the only thing you can do. So, you know, in some ways, this has been brought out of a sense of helplessness. Um, on the other hand, there does seem to be something deeper and more historical going on, which is what I look at a lot in this book. Because actually in the book, I move away from technology as a root cause and start to look at the deeper cultural and historical things going on, especially between the Cold War and now. And, and, and kind of the conclusion that I come to, which, which is a tenuous conclusion, um, and again, it's one I, I want people to engage with me because I don't think it's a final answer, but it's maybe an answer. See, I mean, relativistic already, is that um, in the Cold War, you had two systems, democratic capitalism and communism, that were both trying to convince people that they were rational systems which were achieving uh, a real kind of utopian future. Communism claimed to be scientific. Democratic capitalism claimed to be full of enlightenment values. And, and because they were trying to prove this rational future, they needed the language of evidence and facts and arguments to prove they were getting there. That was kind of their roots. Uh, and in political language, facts and evidence and truth are very allied to an idea of a future that you're proving that you're achieving. You need the evidence to prove you're getting there. I mean, I don't know if, if your listeners remember, but the Soviets, right to the end, had these bizarre think tanks that whose job was to prove that the communist experiment was succeeding. And they'd come up with this bizarre evidence that it was actually all working. I mean, this wonderful concept that they had that people were not unemployed in the Soviet Union. The fact they had so much free time was a sign of its success. You know, just like this kind of like definitely trying to still like have a rational basis that the experiment was working. Um, and then what happens is, is these ideas of the future kind of disappear. Firstly, you know, communism obviously collapses. But then in Russia, by 1993, democratic capitalism has collapsed. And you see any discourse about the future wilt away. And you see the emergence already in Russia in the 1990s of politicians that you see in the West, I think, much later, of politicians who, are, who just don't give a toss about the truth anymore. Zhirinovsky was the great example of it. He was a kind of a, a Trumpian politician several decades before Trump. And the whole discourse moves away from trying to prove a rational future that you're attaining to, to nostalgia. And nostalgia kind of takes over the Russian discourse in the 1990s, emerging with this idea that Zhirinovsky first raises, then Putin makes really his, his byline, um, bringing Russia kind of off its knees, which is kind of make America great again, but in Russian. And yeah. in the West, the idea of the future kind of dissipates slowly. Obviously, 2008 is a massive one. This idea of kind of like a, a liberal, you know, a globalist liberal future kind of breaks apart. Um, and, and then various, I think, I think Iraq is a, is a big puncturing of the ideal that democracy is, is, a, is, a, is a necessary, is, 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 is inevitable. Uh, and then you, see, you still have Obama sort of talking about the arc of history, but he doesn't even seem to believe it anymore. That was one of the weird things about Obama. He was so wonderful in so many ways, but you know, in his policies, actually, he's retreating from that he's into kind of a, um, an, American, uh, an American inward turn already. Um, and, 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 and you see these kind of 
politicians emerging all over the place who 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 are all connected by a not caring about the truth and b and not caring about the language of facts and b they're all nostalgists so whether it's trump or orban or bolsonaro or duterte or you know some elements of the politics of britain they're not ideologically very similar uh but they are all nostalgists and i think that's very telling that's um that's fascinating i want to ask you where you're precisely where you're going here but i want to you've got you've got a raft of politicians pushing in a particular direction using this tool nostalgia that you're talking to which is not which is not politics it's not ideology it's a gesture a bit in the same way that um, people have always described fascism not as an idea so much as as a move um, but that is it's a it's a brand of it's a form of populism it's a populist move it needs a population to be turned on by it for it to work it needs a uh, supine is the wrong word it needs a population to be um, open to that kind of politics that kind of move why why are we all so open to this anti-rational sort of anti-progress retrograde nostalgic backward looking emotional feely kind of politics now so first you know all of us are there are people who so when we do so, you know i also apart from doing kind of reporting i do i do a little bit of social research as well uh, in my role at the this think tank that i run at the lse um and it's very very interesting i mean it's um uh, we looked at the ukrainian uh election but but a friend of mine sophia gaspar who does a work, lot of work at nostalgia has found the same in, in, in many countries people who feel their lives are getting better are the ones who still work vote for kind of the old rational parties you know because <laughs> they feel their lives are getting better i mean you it's, it's, it's i think it's very of course people are very receptive this is why these politicians are are doing well if people don't feel that their lives are improving if they don't feel their children's lives are going to be better than theirs if they don't see any if all that the future as presented to them tells them is unpleasant things then why on earth would they look to it um you know so so i think it's um so it's just that. So you're, you're framing this as, you know, if the future doesn't sound appealing, then look to the past. And that is an emotional move and therefore a political move that people make. I, I mean, I think it, it, and what we, we could get into what we mean by appealing. I don't think it's just economics. Uh, I think it's a lot, a, lot, a lot of other things as well. Um, but um, I, I think in terms of voting, uh, it'd be very interesting to go by uh you know block by block voting block by voting block over the last elections and see to what extent they they align by by that sense of do you feel that you're you know over the course of your lifetime things have got better or not i think i think it could be very very telling um which way people voted based on that um or do you think that your children will have a better life than you um that could be much more of a uniting thing than than left or right or all those other things um, I mean, what's very telling is that young people feel this as well. So, so you know, this phenomenon in, in, in France, the Front National, is, is is being supported by young people. It's the young people in a lot of countries who feel that especially. So young people are especially nostalgic. Nostalgic isn't, isn't about any real past. Nostalgic is about not liking the present and the future. Um, so so I, think, I, think, I think yes. And I, I think, um, uh, you know, that it's... It's it's um, you know that it's it's uh, um, that's a very broad swath of people who might actually not even like each other very much or know each other very much. It's not divided into classes necessarily. Um, yeah. But um, 
uh, if you can tap into that. It's very interesting. Uh, I mean, populism by its nature is very, very heterogeneous. It's, it can't be too ideological, which is why left populism always fails, because it's left populism and it's always boxed in to the 13% of people who are left or the 15% of people who are left. True populism can be left, right, um, nationalist, internationalist, all in one go. There was a great radio documentary about Boris Johnson that I listened to, trying to work out who's the real Boris Johnson. And, and they couldn't work him out because he was everything. He could be nationalist, internationalist, liberal, slightly authoritarian. He could do all those things and somehow sell himself to all those different audiences. Um, and that is, th th that is the populist skill. I mean, there was all these people in America, uh, journalists saying sort of, hey, Trump, you said you hated socialists, but the economics that you're doing during, during Corona is socialist. Don't you get that's contradictory? And that's the point. Uh, populist, populism doesn't have an ideological logic. It does whatever works in that moment. Um, With a massive focus on the negative definition of self, right? So mm -hmm. I, I, you, you, you bring up Chantal Mouffe, the leftist populist in your book, who I've read. Um, and um, she has that. I mean, her attempt to build a left-wing populism is just to say, okay, if we can, if we can make the people that we are not, if we can find the people on whom we're going to blame all this stuff hateable by enough people, we end up with a very large group who will therefore vote Jeremy Corbyn. It was broadly the theory there. It's all around figuring out who the bad guys are um, and making sure they're hated enough by, by, by enough people for, the, for those who are not the bad guys to form a, to form a core. Is, it, it is that negative definition of who you are that drives, that is the, the only kind of continual core of populism, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's what it is, is creating a non-people that you can be a people against. Um, that, I, mean, that, that, I mean, there are many definitions of populism out there, but I think that's the one where everyone kind of agrees is, is, is pretty, is pretty, um, uh, is pretty, is, is pretty consistent, that kind of discursive part. Um, uh, so, so in my book, I try to put this idea of what I call pop-up populism. I try to, again, I try to, I want to get out of, you know, I'm trying, I try to put different stories next to each other to show how, you know, how this zeitgeist isn't, isn't just about sort of Europe and America or even India. So I have three moments of what I call, uh, you know, of, of, you know, populism as a strategy. Chantal Mouffe is there as well, um, ever present. Um, but I also look at Islamists and how they try to build this idea of an ummah, uh, you know, uh, political Islamists, uh, a kind of a, um, a, a political community. Islamic community yeah. and how similar that is to the populist strategy. And then I look at Russia in the 1990s where, you know, all the old ideologies collapsed as we discussed and one had to construct this idea of the Russian people grouped around first Yeltsin and then Putin. Um, there it was known as the Putin majority, the idea of the Bolshevstvo, you know, for the many, not the few, basically. Uh, and how similar it is and how they're all working, uh, the political Islamists, the Brexiteers, MUF and, 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 and these political strategies from Russia in the 1990s are all working in this, in this strange space where there's no ideologies competing for the future anymore. So all you can do is build identities, yeah? You know, everything becomes about building new identities to oppose the other identity. There's no ideological arguments to win. And then Muth talks about this a lot. I mean, she, she, she talks about how the essence of politics is building, building new political identities. Um, and, and that's not the same thing as identity politics, by the way. Identity politics is some weird American thing, which I find 
very hard to understand. It's, it seems very kind of... Ditto. Ditto. Yeah, but it just seems some weird American... No, it's just it's some sort of American condition that we have to understand in the context of America. I'm talking about something much, much bigger, which is the job of the political strategist is not to win an argument. It's to create new ideas of the people, create new political identities. Um, uh, on the fly and constantly. You have to constantly reinvent them and do them again and recreate them and they collapse. It's a, a flux that you're creating out of. Um, and, and, you know, none of it is particularly future-orientated. None of it can be long-term. None of it knows how to govern by definition. It's constantly in campaign mode, you know. You, Trump is constantly in campaign mode. That's all, because you constantly have to generate the enemy. And it's very hard to govern if you've brought together people with completely different grievances and just, you know, cobbled them together for one vote. It's, you know, we saw how Five Star have struggled in Italy, who is probably maybe the purest uh, populist movement we've seen so far. Um, we've seen how Trump, Peter, Trump, 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 you know, he really struggled to, 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 to he had to be constantly at war with the world um, and, and constantly moving. You're constantly, you're leaving bombs every time one bomb explodes, you move on to the next yeah, bomb. Well, constantly, I mean, Trump literally is in campaign mode. He, he hasn't stopped campaigning. You know, he's constantly looking for the lamestream media, the establishment. He's it's very rare, rare for someone who's won an election to be a conspiracist. You know, conspiracists are usually losers who need an excuse. He's in power and has to carry on looking for the enemy that's somehow undermining him. Even Peter, when that things were going me... well, he was looking for that. <laughs> yeah, no, that, no it, he, and he continues to do that. But that brings me actually to that. So um, my question to you was going to be, um, in the absence of truth, what replaces it? And you've talked about identity and this kind of driven tribalism. We've spoken about the relativism pushed, the, the kind of the gaslighting of, of, of all these trolls and bot armies and everything else. But there is also a conspiracy move, isn't there? And you talk a lot about this shift towards conspiracy as a way of thinking, as a sort of government-mandated way of thinking. You brought up Trump, but Putin does the same. Um, tell me a little bit about that. You have this lovely term in the book. You talk about white jamming. Um, why, why the shift to conspiracy? Why is it so useful? Who does it appeal to? Mm -hmm. So we've always had conspiracy on the fringes, but now we see conspiracy as a kind of a dominant thing of of political discourse from leaders. You know, Trump is the obvious example. Uh, Putin's been using it for a long time. Vucic, Erdogan, um, like ev everywhere. This, this, this is very interesting. Um, and they're kind of endless conspiracy theories. I mean, it's not like the Nazis had their one conspiracy theory is the Jews are behind everything. This is more kind of a conspiratorial discourse. You know, there's always a hidden hand or a Zionist or a Soros or something else behind everything. It's more, you know, in lieu of clear ideologies, conspiracy has become like a worldview. You know? um, and I think it's very important to look at its functions. Um, so for the user, it's, it, 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 it creates a service because it creates... Um, you know, if you're feeling confused in a very fast-changing world with globalization and the loss of old social roles, conspiracy becomes a way of, you know, explaining the chaos. Moreover, it becomes a way of um, giving yourself an excuse if you haven't done very well in life because it's all the conspiracy's fault. So that's quite a nice service that it delivers, and it kind of relieves anxiety and guilt that way. Um, but I think for the leaders, it does it does two very interesting things. One, it's in a world where you can't really say that my guys are left wing and the opposite is right wing because you're trying to play to both to all those to all those needs at the same time, conspiracy is a very good way of defining us and them. I mean, that's what it does. That's what it does as a kind of a function um, 
And uh, one of the, the most telling bits of research on this, I think, is that the people who voted for the populist party that's in charge in Poland, the thing that really united them more than anything else was not left, right, conservative, liberal attitudes, all this grammar of policy. It was that they, they all believed in the conspiracy theory about the plane crash, which had killed a bunch of Polish politicians quite a few years ago, but which there had become this massive conspiracy that actually this was a, a deep state operation to get rid of some political leaders. Uh, and they believed in that. I would love to go back to the Trump vote. Uh, I don't know if anyone's done this and see if they're actually united by birtherism or something. You know, was that actually the defining factor? Because there are some bits of the Trump vote which make sense. Others are just old school Republicans. But then there's a lot of middle class people who voted Trump, a lot of suburban moms who voted Trump. And I, and I wonder if actually maybe is, is the thing that unites them all uh, a predilection for climate change, conspiracy theories, birtherism. I don't know. Uh, you know, the idea that Obama wasn't born in America. So so it's a very good way of, of defining us and them, of saying I'm on this side or that side. It's very hard to argue with conspiracy theorists because it's often not about the facts. It's about defining an identity. Um, and there's a second thing which I feel conspiracy theories do the way they're being used by Trump and Putin and Erdogan and Vucic and all these other, and Orban, obviously, which is, and, and here, I, you know, this is my sense. I'd love to do some research to prove it, is that the way they kind of pile conspiracies onto you one after the other, it makes you feel that you live in a world where you can't change anything because you live in a world of endless shadowy hands where one glove is inside another hand. And in this world, you know, you're never going to change anything. You know, so it undermines your sense of agency and democratic um, activism, the desire for democratic activism. And it makes you go, well, then in this murky world, I need a Putin or a Trump or an Orban to lead me and shelter me in this dark world, which is unknowable. Um, I mean, that's my sense, that it's very, very good in an environment where you can't, um, you can't sort of control things like you know the border uh it's still a way of making people feel that they have no power and they need a strong man and of course that undermines faith i mean like you know you just say look bbc's a conspiracy of you know whatever uh conspiracy of centrist dads um don't trust it it's a way of undermining trust in, in everything as well um beautiful no that's a very good tour d'horizon of yeah, um, the, 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 okay. that's one of the things that I really want to yeah. research a lot more. Because there's something different between the fringes using conspiracies and their conscious use by political leaders. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And and we've seen it across the entire board. And to, there is no us and them here. It's all of ours. Um, and not pretty. Um, I want to ask you, I want to go full conspiracy and relative here. Um, We've all been involved in informa informational warfare forever. Um, God, this COVID thing is a hideous example, the Chinese flu, the American flu. Um, but let's not forget the BBC World Service is also part funded by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And the US has been running Voice of America around the world and endless Arabic versions of, of uh, sort of uh, the, the American view into, into Iraq and, and Syria and elsewhere. Um, so, so I suppose the question here is, other Russians or any of the others, 
um, right when they ask whether there's anything qualitatively different between their version of the story and the objective or version of the story. You have a lovely line in your book. Some Russian official says, objectivity is a myth that was imposed upon us. Mm. So is objectivity a judgment call? Is it a myth? Is, is objectivity actually more truthy than their stuff? So a bunch of stuff to, to unpack there. Um, so in terms of, I mean, the simple answer is, uh, is, is yes, there is a qualitative difference. Just it's, and it's about objective, and they are objective editorial standards. Um, so, um, you know, World Service that you mentioned and Radio for Europe and Voice of America have very strict editorial standards, um, which is, you know, employed in things uh, like accuracy and um, retractions and and so on and so forth. So we do have, um, you know, th there are a bunch of journalistic rules, which actually most people... I think if you stop most people in the street, they still recognize. You know? So I wouldn't swallow too much of what of what of that stuff. So I say that there is a qualitative difference. So that's that's one side. That that that's one point. That's kind of like the easy point because that's something that kind of you know there's some thin consensus around um, socially. But but you know the clever answer will be it doesn't matter. You can have those standards. It's a gender setting and framing and. It really isn't about like telling one lie here or there. That's actually sloppy. The clever thing is to like, you know, not lie and push your uh, and sort of distort people's sense of what's important and how you talk about it. So, so you know, there's a sophisticated answer to, to that kind of very simple answer. Um, I would be very, very careful around this term information war. So the way I've seen it... Um, the way I've seen it used in Russia, it grew from being a definition of information operations by various states, which, which yes, that happens all the time. Though I wouldn't actually include the organizations that you mentioned in that. There are other bits of the, of the military and secret services, which, which no doubt do information operations all the time, um, and who see those informa information operations in a militarized way. So not to convince or form public opinion, which is, you know, what, what media might be accused of doing, but in a very militarized way to confuse, um, delay, dismay, and this instrumentalized use of information where the information itself is irrelevant. It's just its kind of effects in a, in a, in a kind of political warfare operation that's, that's important. So I've seen, and that's a legitimate way to talk about information warfare. That's the way the military would use it. It's the sort of militarized use of information. So, I've seen the definition in Russia grow from that narrow one to a kind of quasi-philosophy that, that, that has replaced the Cold War. So it's, again, what happens when the old ideologies die? And it started with a bit of historical revisionism. Yeah? It started, and this was in the early 2000s, with a bunch of sort of cranky academics saying that the Soviet Union lost the Cold War, not because of its economic policies or rubbish, not because the philosophy was rubbish, not because of the ideas were nonsense, not because the government was corrupt, but because of information warfare from the West. Information viruses planted uh, inside the Russian information ecosystem through reformers around Gorbachev, through Western radio, through ideas like freedom of expression. 
And these information viruses brought down the USSR. So it's a way of saying there are no values in the world. Yeah, there are no arguments. There are no values. There are, all information is just a form of manipulation always. Yeah, there is no good and bad. So information warfare is, is a way of kind of like stripping history and life out of any values and meaning and just reduce it to this completely cynical wasteland where there is no difference between, um, you know, you know, th there is no difference between supporting human rights and supporting neo-Nazis, between um, legitimate forms of public diplomacy or international broadcasting, which try to win arguments and you know, do, 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 do that kind of thing where, where the information matters in and of itself and, and um, you know, a disinfo op whose aim is simply to cause confusion. So it's a very deeply, deeply cynical worldview. And I've seen it grow and grow and grow. And when the Putin regime kind of needed an excuse to explain various types of uh, democratic movements across the world and Middle East, and most importantly, in Ukraine, they turned to that. Everything is information warfare. Uh, and it's become a dominant a way of explaining the world, really. And that's very, yeah. very corrosive and dangerous. Um, so coming back to things like, I mean, if, if you buy into that, I mean, that really is, you know, the anti-ideology that is so dangerous these days. And we also see in Donald Trump, you know, this sense that there are no values, there's nothing to fight for. Human rights is a myth. Everything that democracy has fought for and claimed as a value is just a mask for manipulation. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a deeply pernicious worldview. And if one continues its logic, um, and I think it takes much imagination about where it leads. So we are in a, in a place where fighting for the idea of values has to start all over again. You know, the 20th century showed us why you fight for those values, because when you don't have them, you know, it ends up in. in yeah, that was going to be that was going to. That's my last question to you, Peter, which is um, precisely on the back of this. Democracies depend on voters. A, having a consensus view of reality um, and therefore believing in something called objective truth, and B, having access to real information about that reality in order to make the best decisions at the ballot box. So I suppose my question to you is, can democracy survive in a postmodern information ecosystem, the postmodern information ecosystem, relativistic, um, conspiracy-driven, tribal identity-focused, that you've described, and um, and if it can't, which I think is where, where where you're going, how do we how do we fight against it? How do we fight against what democracy? Oh, right. No. <laughs> um, if you want. So, um, well, look, we are in the middle of of the lockdown. Um, I don't know when you're going to be broadcasting this, but I've I've just been interviewing a psychoanalyst. Uh, about, you know, I was interviewing him about how people reject evidence when it clashes with their identities, which is something that's been shown extensively by, by bits of social science research. Um, and why that's become more intense recently. And it was for all the reasons that, that you and I have talked about. So as old ideologies and old social roles collapse, new identities are formed and people cling to them um, in ways that are, are much more passionate because they feel anxious and uncertain. Um, 
so but but it's very interesting to talk to the, to, to the psychoanalyst because because um it was like he thinks there's a new kind of a new, a new kind of broader national identity forming in in england probably in britain due to the coronavirus and he was very witty he's called he's got a guy called josh cohen he's also a literary critic and he was saying that uh he's brilliant and extremely funny yeah you're right yeah uh he's sort of saying that that it's going because no one's talking about you know brexit and remain anymore uh you know that that those identities have just disappeared from our discourse and, and he was saying what we're seeing is the formation of a new kind of common identity with a new common enemy the the virus but he said it was very interesting how it was proceeding along um, classic Freudian lines. So our first instinct when this whole thing started was to kill our parents. So wherever it came from, was it the government or someone else? It was this, you know, this idea that went through society that, oh, we'll just let the old people die. <laughs> it was ascribed to Dominic Cummings, who is the id of England, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if there was a neurosis, you know, if England was to have a neurosis, its name is Dominic Cummings. Um, and he's fascinating that way, isn't he? Like, you know, and he's, he's, he sits in, within that and manipulates it. One, I mean, not wonderfully, sort of frighteningly, but essentially that it was ascribed to him. Uh, I don't know if he said it, but it was ascribed to, you know, Johnson's spin doctor and the guy who engineered the um, Brexit campaign. Um, and so, but after this, after this period of saying we're going to kill our parents, um, in the classic Freudian way, everybody felt really guilty. And, and we had a complete U-turn, and now it's protect your parents, you know. You've got to do everything to save the old people, and, you know, the, if don't go out and have fun because you'll end up killing your parents. And then Josh was like, well, this is the classic Freudian way, the way kind of civilization starts. First, the desire to kill the father, then guilt, repression, and kind of praying to the parents. Um, and he said, we are going through this. Pr- this, is, this is how, you know, group identities and, and indeed civilizations are formed. And, and it is being grouped round you know, at least people are talking about the facts. There's a lot of debate about them, which is which is actually normal for scientific discourse. But we're looking to authority again. You know, we're looking to to it's in a reality in which objectivity has a role. You know, it's questioned, it's interrogated, but it's it's clearly in the middle of it. You know, we are talking about the science. I mean, science is just a bit it's a bit open ended by its nature. So so finally, he was like, we are going to have a new group identity merge out of this, which does have facts and evidence at its center. Uh, so he was very, he wasn't optimistic. He was realistic, he said, um, which was interesting because if you look at America, which is only going into an election cycle, obviously we see the opposite happening. We see even something which is a scientific public health thing, you know? I mean, the coronavirus doesn't give a monkeys about whether you're a Trump voter or not. Um, being turned into a partisan, a partisan war, and the search for different enemies. Um, when you know we're being really cool about this, it's a bit of Trump's fault, bit of China's fault, bit of governor's fault, bit of all of our fault. I mean, actually, probably the blame is, you know, Trump was incompetent, no doubt. But you know, if we're going to be really fair about it, there's a lot of blame to go around. But it's not; it's certainly not being debated that way. You know, it's either all yeah. Trump's fault or all China's fault, and it's devastating watching that happen. Um, the, the question is, you know, there's two ways of coming to us, coming to our senses, because at the end of the day, look, evidence and facts aren't pleasant, but they're useful because they because they kind of like they're good, quite good for survivability. <laughs> so either we just have some horrific events that makes people engage with kind of, you know, evidence and deliberation and painful consensus building through that. Or, you know, 
I just hope that event isn't too bad. I mean, you know, maybe this is that event. We're just going through the. You know, people are going to be so appalled by partisanship in this period that they'll 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 want to move beyond it. I mean, it's been very interesting in Europe how the AFD in Germany have gone quiet. Salvini has gone relatively quiet. Front National relatively quiet. It's very interesting how this kind of identity politics is just like people aren't. It's not working right at the moment. And America, America is the big exception. America is the big exception. But even there, it's, um, you know, Biden is making this big fat pitch for like, let's not, let's stop doing this. Let's stop dividing ourselves. And who knows, maybe it'll work. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. You know, I, I am for the first time talking to my Trump voting relatives. And we are having, I mean, about politics, because we're talking about coronavirus. I mean, we never stopped talking, but, but at one point we stopped talking about politics. Because um, it was just, we were just, the realities were so far apart, you know, it was it was impossible. And but now we're talking about stuff because we have something, you know, they're, they're they're actually, you know, they have scientific education, so we can talk about corona and we can talk about the evidence and we can then you know, suddenly we're all talking in, within scientific discourse. So so maybe it'll it'll bring us all together. Maybe it's that. Maybe um, this I, I hope I hope so because because <laughs> because 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 the only other way then becomes an authoritarian model where you have a big fat bully saying this is the truth and how we're acting. Because the, the end effect of this partisanship, this crazy polarization, this identity politics, is not actually, I think, you know, totalitarianism at all. It's just going to be, it's just incompetence um, and, and uh, incompetence and impotence um, at the end of the day. It's not, I don't think, you know, I don't think Trump is about to turn America into a totalitarian state. And I find the parallels with the 1930s are not always helpful that way. It's it's much more kind of just like, you know, just the collapse of 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 any kind of action and being able to do anything. And then the people who take over the world are are these kind of determined authoritarians who 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 can act. So yeah, that's the, that's the flip, isn't it? Because yeah, on the yeah. one hand, you've got um, this return to authority. Finally, actually believing in facts might save your parents' lives, your parents who yeah. you did want dead, but actually probably not so much anymore. Um, <laughs> you did want dead, but then you felt guilty. Now you don't because you're feeling guilty, exactly. <laughs> um, but the flip there, of course, is that another another uh, sort of gesture to authority is a gesture to these efficient autocracies. You and I would have mentioned before, but Robert Kagan's book, The Return of History, where he argues that the 21st century would would see a fight between efficient autocracies on the one hand and inefficient democracies on the other. Um, of genuinely open fight. But right now, if we look at what coronavirus has, uh, has, has shown up, there's a clear winner <laughs> in this one. So as you say, you may we have, we, we have a return to authority, either in the shape of facts or in the shape of bully politics. Okay, let, 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 me, so let me give you a third way, a third way that we've been looking at um, in our tiny little experiments. So because social media is... Look, we didn't actually, by the way, mention the most important thing. The most important difference between propaganda then and now is that now everybody's a propagandist. Every time, not just because you can write a blog, but every time you like share, you are distributing information and propagandizing. And in that sense, today's propaganda is very similar to this virus. Because what's been fascinating with the coronavirus, having had it, is that you are very aware that you're not just a victim of it, but that you may have spread it. You're very, it's, it's very strange. Actually, when I got it, I, I was not so much fearful for my own safety because I'm at that kind of age where I, I still, you know, I'm still 
stupid enough to think that I, I, I won't get a disease, which is very stupid. But, um, but I was much more worried about who I'd given it to. I knew we, we I mean, we'd given it to our cleaning lady. Um, I was worried about like a, a teacher that comes around to teach art to the kids. You know, it's just the sense of awfulness that you help spread it, and that's the big change today on 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 social media, especially, is that you're everybody is not just a receiver of propaganda, a passive audience. Everybody's also spreading it every time you you press share or retweet. So in a way, our focus now has to be much less, I think, in trying to, you know, think about objectivity and all these enlightened values at source, because that's going to be impossible. You know, that's very, very hard to 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 control, but much think about it much more in terms of the discourse media generates um so you're right it is much harder proving that you are being fair and balanced for for many reasons for philosophical reasons because of the amount of media out there it's very hard to understand we're being balanced between um but what we can think about is does a media produce or foster an online conversation which is rational and civil and grounded in facts and where people are having, you know, the sort of thing that we need for democracy to survive. And we can measure that. So we did a project in Italy with Corriere della Sera, looking at how they write about migration and looked at what kinds of articles produce what kinds of discourses on their Facebook page. And there is a way of creating content that creates a conversation that's trusting, that's less toxic, so there's ways of doing that. It's the problem is it's not instantly profitable, but there are ways of doing that. So maybe we should start thinking of these enlightenment values of evidence-based debate and deliberative democracy, which are just aspirations, by the way. But but you know, let's how do we hold on to the aspirations? Can we start thinking not about whether the piece of content itself is ideally objective and impartial and all, all these things, but whether it's provoking a conversation which is that? So let's start thinking about media much more in its effect. Now, something which has a terrible effect, I think, are what we think of as in, as a very democratic form, uh, which is political debates. They're terrible. The way they're designed at the moment is like, it increases partisanship. It undermines debate because the way they're designed, for example, the democratic debates in America, if you watch them, they're designed like a reality show, like a Punch and Judy show. If you, as a candidate, attack somebody else, they have 30 seconds to reply. Then you have 30 seconds to reply. So that they incentivize people bitching at each other. And you had this horrific sight of super bright people like Buttigieg and Klobuchar doing this kind of sub Kim Kardashian big brother attacks on each other just to have a bit more oxygen. Yeah. Terrible. You could redesign debate shows in order to encourage a completely different form of debate. And then I think encourage a completely different form of reaction from from the viewer. Um, like yeah, what you're describing is so close to our hearts, obviously, with Palia, which we're trying as best we can but to not, build but a media. Technologically, it's not hard. I mean, there's been actually decades of media effects analysis showing how you could think about this. So that's new. I don't think anybody working in journalism thinks about the effect of their content. They've started to do a little bit more with Trump. They're kind of like, hold on, are we actually helping him by repeating his lie a thousand times? There's been a bit of thinking about disinformation, you know, by debunking it, are you actually making it worse? Um, 
So they've at least it's entered journalists' heads. But, you know, I worked in media for a long time. Not for a moment did we ever think of the effect of our, of what we did on discourse. I mean, we might think about it in terms of framing. You know, we want to have more minorities on TV, stuff like that kind of stuff. But in terms of whether our storytelling or our, or our format was making democracy healthier and better and discourse better and encouraging, you know, um, no, on the contrary, the whole idea was that if you did think about it in those terms, you were somehow intervening in the politics of the news, and therefore that's exactly what you didn't do. No, you're right. Um, those, uh, those, those walls, I think, I agree with you, I think they're, they're starting to come down, and not in a bad way. Um, so we have something positive here to look forward to. We either have a return uh, to, uh, to authority through COVID or other things because we realize that science actually helps us stay alive, or we have a return to authority because we're so frightened by these destabilized selves that we exist in um, that we go and find strong men, always men, strong men rulers to, to, to tell us what is true, or we have something much more prosaic and much more beautiful, which is um, we start thinking about new ways to tell stories, new ways to engage people with each other. Um, and um, try and help bridge these, I suppose, what are they? They're, they're, we'll try and build that consent, that reality consensus, right? We'll try, look, it's even, reality consensus sounds creepy. It's much more basic than that. Like, when I look at propaganda, and I think about what it is, and what's the difference between communication and propaganda, it goes, it goes to something very, very simple and very, very human. It's fine to have an opinion. It's fine to be the representative of your state. It's fine to do public diplomacy. We should all have countries talking to each other across borders, and they're always going to give their opinion. That is actually fine. It's whether that is done in a, in a discourse that allows the other person to respond and join in the conversation. When you do conspiracy theories, that kills the conversation. You know, you can't argue with them. That's a way of stopping conversation. When you create covert campaigns and pretend to be Americans when actually it's a troll in St. Petersburg, you can't have a genuine conversation with that troll. That's the problem. They break down discourse. And weirdly, they take away the right of the other person to their share in reality. You know, you've already taken something away from the other by not allowing them to have that conversation with you as an equal. So, it, and we know all that in our personal lives, you know, you know, there, there's a difference between having an argument with someone and having a genuine argument with you and you're debating and you might hate each other's guts, but it's a real conversation. And, and somebody who is, who is destroying the conversation, I'm sure it's, you know, tr a troll online is not trying to have a conversation with you. It's trying to just, you know, just, just destroy the possibility of conversation through seeding, you know, doubt and so, and so on and so forth. And, and we know the difference whenever we confront that. And, and, and that's what it is. It's, I mean, reality consensus is not. It's just the possibility of communication, which, which is deeply, again, it's about recognizing the other. You know, it's about, you know, it comes down to these very, very deep humanistic values. Uh, and of course, come back to populism. Populism, by definition, says that the other, the, you know, whether it's the MSM or the liberal elites, they're all bad. You can't talk to them or evil Tories or whatever, or, you know, or the unspeakable left. By definition, it says that the other is someone that you cannot have a, a conversation with because they are inherently non-people, which is which is why I don't like populism in any form. <laughs> it's terrible for the, what I do, which is try to create uh, media that, that reaches out. Just by definition, populism rejects that notion.
Peter, um, this was. You know what? I'll give you a last. I'll give you a last thought. You know what? Yeah, yeah. It's either populism or the public. I believe in the public. I believe in public, you know, discourse and public service media. Populism, by definition, says there is no such thing as the public. It's competing with the idea of the public. It says there's the people and the non-people. So populism hates the public, uh, and I'm on the side of the public and against the populists. There you go. <laughs> Beautiful. Bye. What a great, what a great way to wrap this thing. This has been huge fun. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Bye. Bye. Take care. That was the Parlia podcast from Parlia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion.